Well, we've, we've finally done it. We are at the final sermon in Mark. Uh, it's been a, a wild ride. It's been months and months of us working through Mark, and we are finally at Mark 16. But un- unfortunately, I'm not ready to be, well, we are done with it, but I'm not ready to be done with chapter 15 just yet. And so I'm going to read the last two verses of Mark 15, because I actually want to spend a good portion of our, our sermon today talking about these last two verses. This is Mark 15, 46 through 47. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, that's Jesus, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, I want to focus on just these last two for a good portion because I want us to ask us ourselves and ponder, if we, if we can, just a little bit, a dreadful scenario. And this is, this is the scenario. This is the question. What if that was the end of the book? <laughs> what if the stone had never been rolled away? What would a world without Jesus look like? You see, it's no secret all throughout time that Christianity hinges upon the resurrection being true. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that if Christ is not raised, our faith is futile. We are dead in our sins, and we, if we have hope in Christ only in this life, we of all people are most to be pitied, those poor Christians. If the tomb is not empty, then the world is without Jesus And we are without a Savior. Let's see what's buried behind that stone door. Well, it's the mortal flesh of Christ and it remains. It's resting in the dark. The grave is shut. The disciples, all those who love him, all his followers, they now go to face the days of head, knowing they will never see Jesus again. The one they love has been buried forever. Anyone who's ever lost someone dear to them, near to them, you know this feeling, this feeling of loss, this feeling of of deep regret. And all these feelings are accentuated when we stop and we consider whose body it is. He saved others. He could not save himself. And we must pause here, for this is seemingly death's victory. Death has won. The world is without Christ. Christianity lies dead and buried in that tomb right next to our Lord. What else lies in that grave? First, we see the corpse of all that is beautiful dead in the tomb. This is the death of universal beauty itself. You see, life has been challenged. Life itself was challenged. It was insulted. It was spit upon in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was surpassingly wonderful. He was a man who did all things well. He was was awe-inspiring. He was altogether lovely. His life was a revelation of the possibility of the beauty within all things. He was the ideal human being. He inspired everyone who met him to emulate him. Now that beautiful one is dead. And they've rolled a stone to the door of his tomb. His disciples, all those who had known him, had seen him, Over those three years of his ministry, they had walked with him and talked with him and and learned from him. And they saw that Jesus the whole time had been mastered by this one all-consuming passion, and that was to redeem lost things. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came 
to seek and to save the lost. You see, that was the story of his life. He loved lost things. He loved lost people. He loved sinners. His passion was to save sinners. His passion was to do the will of his father who sent him to save a lost people. Before this, humanity had known inspiration. It had known beauty. Before Jesus had come, people always desired to create new and beautiful things. People were always creating and and painting, and and they want to express themselves in artistic ways. Humanity desired to know the truth. What is truth? What's the truth behind life? Why are we here? And so there was philosophies and, and philosophers and all these different philosophical thoughts. And humanity had desired to to see order come out of chaos before Jesus came about. And so there was government put in place and authority and, and, and people who would manage the chaos, protect the people. But then Jesus appears in the midst of cycles and civilizations of darkness as pure, unadulterated light. And so in the midst of artistic expression and philosophical query and authoritative power, Jesus comes as one who says, my purpose is to to grab hold of man's artistic expression and I'm going to show you beauty, true beauty. Everything you've had before this was a shadow. And then he grabs hold of, of all that's false and all man's philosophical lofty ideas and he says, no, 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 here's divine Truth. God's word is truer than true. It goes beyond truth. He takes all the corrupt authorities, all these ideas of power, and he turns them completely upside down on their heads. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to redeem and to make all things new. And humanity, as we know it, had seen sorrows and agonies. It had seen heartbreaks and sighings and weariness and woes. And it was desperate for true beauty. It was was hungry for beauty. It still is hungry for this beauty. And in Jesus, it finally came to realize it. Everyone who encountered Jesus saw him and they said, what we've been longing for is resurrection. It goes beyond beauty. It's to take that which is is broken and to make it new. We need need someone who can lay his hand upon the dead, withered flower of sinful flesh and bone and make it bloom. I want to see see humanity blossom. We need someone who would lay his hand upon the poor, broken image that we had lost in the fall and restore it in the image of God and show us what we had lost. This was the passion of Jesus. But where is he? He's dead. And they've laid a stone against his tomb. In Dostoevsky's novel, uh, The Idiot, the Russian Dostoevsky, he's writing this story. And he's talking about two men who are looking at this painting. It's it's a painting by this uh, artist named Hans Holbein. And the painting is called Dead Christ. And it depicts an emaciated bloody, bruised Jesus. It's disgusting. It's awful to look at. It's, it's, it's a tragedy in itself. Not because of the craftsmanship of it, because of the gruesome subject matter. And the Russians, one of the Russians is in the novel, he's talking about looking at the painting, and he says this. He says, I like looking at that picture. And the companion says, that picture? That picture? Why, some people's faith is ruined by looking at that picture. 
You see, he sees the ugliness of it. And if that's the reality, if if that's all there is, is the last two verses in Mark 15, if that's where the Bible ends, then that picture must ruin our faith as well. Because he never gets up. If there's nothing to come after it, if, if that stone in front of the tomb is still there, if that's the end, then every subsequent grave is a testimony to despair. When you leave this place today and you drive past cemeteries, don't look. Do not look. Shudder in terror. Because if that's all there is, then you're warm food. You know, people try to dress death up. Oh, we become stardust. No. No, it's, it's macabre. It's, there is nothing beautiful about death. Death is the enemy. Death is the enemy. And if the tomb is not empty, then we declare death is one. Death is not beautiful. There's nothing beautiful about death. Secondly, the power of the gospel is dead in that tomb as well. There's no forgiveness from God for our sins because that's dead. Hope is dead. Hope is slain along with Christ. In that tomb lie a dead conception of God. There's a dead religion lying stone cold right next to Jesus. The idea of sacrificial love and truth that transcends all of humanity is buried with Jesus. There's no gospel power. There's no gospel that goes forth and changes the hearts and minds and makes people pour themselves out as broken vessels like we just sang about. And if there's no gospel, then think about the history that we have come to know and love. Listen to our history, how it changes. Regardless of what anyone may think about Jesus, he is the dominant figure, figure in the Western culture for almost 20 centuries. There's a guy named Jaroslav Pelikan, and he wrote a book called Jesus Through the Centuries. He says, if it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would there be left? It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions come to curse and in his name that billions now pray. Before Christian missionaries reached the Aztec civilization, mass sacrificial murder was commonplace. I'm sure many of you know about the pagan god Molech. He was worshipped by offering babies, which they would place in his burning hot hands to die. And Christianity said, enough. You see, human life is precious, and we're saying enough. You will not harm our children that way. Jesus cares about the little children. The Christian monk Telemarchus, he was gazing upon the combat of the gladiatorial games in the Colosseum. And he said, enough! And he descended into the arena and he tried to separate the fighters. And the bloodthirsty crowd stoned him to death. After that, there were no more gladiatorial games because of Telemarchus. In pre-Christian Ireland, the Druid priests demanded that the early Irish offer one-third of their children to their pagan deity, Crom Cruach, until a guy named St. Patrick showed up and said, Enough! Christ says, Enough! Before Christ, human life was cheap and expendable all over the world in the Americas, Near East, Africa, the Middle East, the Far East. Child sacrifice was commonplace. Babies, particularly females, were abandoned. 
In ancient cultures, India, China, Rome, Greece, women were viewed as nothing more than property of their husbands. More recently, in the last two and a half centuries, the advent of the Christian missionary movement, the lives of women have have improved greatly in those countries. And countless female infants have have been abandoned in China and they were saved by orphanages, by, by missionaries who took those babies and protected them and educated them and raised them as their own. In India, prior to Christian influence, elderly widows were burned alive on their husbands' funeral pyres, and they were going to die with them. In Africa, wives and concubines of tribal chieftains were routinely killed after the latter's death. And you see, these practices were almost entirely stopped due to Christian influence, due to the gospel going forth in power, due to Christians saying, Enough! Life is precious. The tomb is empty. Enough. And 2,000 years ago, we read in our Bibles, the Apostle Paul, writing in his letter to Philemon, he talks about this runaway slave named Onesimus. And he says, when Onesimus returns, treat him as a beloved brother in Christ. There is no slave or free or Jew, or Gentile, in Christ's kingdom. All are equal. All are equal. And Paul said, enough. Enough. Revolutionary. It was revolutionary then. It's revolutionary today. And then we come forward, and I can't even talk about the hospitals and the universities which were established in the Middle Ages by Christians. Orphanages, adoption agencies, pregnancy resource centers. How many Christian charities all across the world were spawned due to the gospel? The Christian Renaissance inspired some of the world's most greatest music and the greatest art, all because they love Jesus. The gospel of Christ says all people are declared equal and are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But you see, they've rolled a stone in front of the grave, and all that's dead. All of that is gone. That's the world we live in if Christ is not raised. And if the tomb is not empty, finally, there's no Easter. (laughs) There's no Easter morning. It's always winter and never Christmas if the tomb is not empty. There's no hope of resurrection. There's no eternal life for any of us. Meaningless. Meaningless. All is vanity of vanities. All, all of this is meaningless without Christ. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Go live it up. If the tomb is not empty, go live it up. These are sad reflections. <laughs> I read this to my wife last night and she said, I don't want to think about that world. (laughs) But they're necessary or else we fail to appreciate the wonder that the tomb is empty. You see, there's a pastor on Easter morning who once said this. He said, the world offers promises full of emptiness, but Christianity offers emptiness full of promise. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. And because it's empty, we have great hope. The stone has been rolled away. Mark does not end with those last two verses. 
I, uh, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to preach today. I had um, a really rough week. <laughs> and if you don't know, my dad had a stroke this week. And so I wasn't planning on being up here. And it's, it's felt for a while now, just being emotionally and physically exhausted and everything going on, it felt like uh, we've been under attack by Satan. It felt like there was a darkness over us. And I woke up Saturday and, and my wife said, are you going to preach? And I said, you know what Satan would hate <laughs> more than anything? If I got up and preached about the resurrection after everything that would happen this week. And so I'm here talking about his greatest defeat of all time. And I love it. I'm in my favorite place of all time with my favorite people of all time. And I'm talking about the resurrection. There's joy today. It's with great joy. I'm here to tell you darkness doesn't win. (laughs) Satan doesn't win. Victory. There's no victory for death. There's no victory for Satan. You see, light and beauty is not dead. They live in Christ. The power of the gospel goes forth and transforms men and women. He can't stop it. Satan cannot stop it. People have tried to stop it. They've tried to kill us every which way. You cannot stop the gospel. And that infuriates him. Lives are changed every single day. All across the world, people are sitting in pews just like this, and the gospel is moving in their hearts, and hearts are being changed. We're winning. We're winning. We've always won. We've won because the tomb is empty. You see, we, we win. The battle is won. Now we read Mark 16. I'm just going to focus on the first eight verses. We just don't have time, unfortunately, to to finish it out. Listen to this. This is glorious truth. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. They want to go see Jesus. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away that stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, here we have light. Inexpressible light on that third day. Hope's not dead. Hope is not dead. Beauty is alive. Faith, hope, love, these are triumphant. And the women come to that tomb, and they're expecting a body. They are expecting a body. And it's with excitement and joy that they leave because there is nobody. It's beyond their wildest dreams. And they're terrified by this. They're, they're frightened and they're, they're, they're anxious and they don't know what to... I mean, who would have thought the tomb's, the tomb's empty? And the beautiful thing about this is men and women are still to this day coming to that tomb expecting a body. And when you come to know Jesus Christ, in your heart you go, wait a second. The tomb's empty. He's not there. And if he's not there, what does that mean for my life? And it terrifies you. 
And it moves you, and it gives you joy and excitement, and, and you tremble at that thought. If, if, if he's not there, it means he's on a throne. And if he's on a throne, it means I'm not on the throne. The final verses of Mark 16 are so crammed together. I'm going I'm to invite you to go home and read them later. But in true Mark fashion, he takes 40 days, and he condenses it in like 12 verses. And so, so if you want to see the fuller accounts of that, go to all the Gospels. This is your homework for today. Go to all the Gospels and just read those final chapters. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's just so triumphant and glorious to see our Savior moving about and with his people. For our purposes, I want to go back to the tomb. Let's look at it now with the stone rolled away. Let's look inside. Let's peer into the empty grave. Christ has proved himself to be the victor over death. He's the conqueror he said he would be. He's the conqueror of sin. And that's the central fact of Christianity. All throughout the centuries, this is the driving motivation of the church. It's just like I said. Paul said, if the tomb is not empty, if Christ is not raised, then we should be pitied. And that's why he says, but you know what I do? I preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead. We preach an empty tomb. And this is the revelation of Scripture. This is, this is God's Word. The God who speaks reality into being has told us the truth. The God who commands creation. He says, stand firm. And the creation says, yes, sir. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And he reveals this truth to us, that the tomb is empty. And this is a fact that you can rest your head upon at night. God raised Christ from the dead, and you have a living hope. The resurrection ultimately must be taken by faith. I can give you proof after proof. I could talk to you about the eyewitness testimonies and I could go into all the proofs and I could say, this is so well documented. But you have to take the resurrection by faith. This will never become real to you. The power of the gospel will never move you and affect you and the beauty of Christ will never take hold of you unless the Holy Spirit moves in you through hearing, unless you hear it and receive it. And so I want you to do that today. I'm going to extend to you now the promise, the truth from God's Word. It says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God did what? Raised Him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And you hear, you hear how final that is. It's not, you might be saved you could be saved a couple of years from now. There's a, there's a path to being saved. You will be saved. Jesus Christ has accomplished it for us. And so belief with mere intellect will, will never produce moral or spiritual results. The heart has to be affected by this truth. No man or woman knows, and I mean that in the, in the real sense, knows that Jesus rose from the dead, except the one who in helplessness of soul has poured themselves out before him. If, if, you, if you have come to the cross in your deepest need, you will know that he has died for you and now makes intercession for you. This resurrection is also a fact that cannot be denied, except by ignorance. You, 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 can, you can look at the resurrection and you can say, well, I don't, I don't like that. But you can't disprove it. You can't just prove it just because you don't like it. You, you may shut your ears, you may close your eyes to the truth, but it doesn't make it any less true. 
And you see the historical facts in all those eyewitness accounts, all of the well-documentedness. If you deny this, then you have to deny all of history. All of history is invalid then. What, you don't, you don't like this because nobody's ever raised, been raised from the dead before? Exactly. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? That in all of human history, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Isn't that remarkable that it happened? That's the truth. Had there been no resurrection, what then? How did, how did Christianity live? If the tomb wasn't empty, how did Christianity gone? How did it not only survive, but it spread like wildfire? A dead leader doesn't really inspire confidence, does he? But you see, it lived again. Christianity lived again. It lives today because he lived again. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And it lives because he lives even now. Another reason why Christianity is alive and well is because what the empty tomb did is it transfigurated the cross. It took the cross, which repulses us. I mean, two weeks back, three weeks back, we looked at the cross And you would be crazy not to shudder in the shadow of it. At the gruesomeness of the cross, it it sickens you to look at it. And then the, 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 the empty tomb takes the humiliation of it. And it completely transforms it. Listen to this. I mean, there is nothing so shameful and so wrong and so evil and so unjust in all of human history as much as the cross was. And then Paul comes along in Galatians 6.14, and he says this, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He takes the most shameful thing in all of human history, the cross, and he says, I'm boasting in it. And now every single Christian can wear a little cross necklace. We can take a Roman Means of execution and use that as a a tool of victory. We glory in the cross because of Christ. And so then we see all these weak and feeble little disciples. You Peter, you know, Peter, who was just so, so pitiful. And in the book of Acts, he's preaching fire. I mean, he is coming out and, and he is on fire for the Lord. He's bold and, and brave. And he, and he goes willingly. All, I mean, almost all of the apostles go to gruesome deaths for Christ's sake. And they counted all joy to suffer in the same way he suffered. Just a little piece of that suffering is joy. He's risen. He's risen. Do you see it? Can you imagine it? Can you, can, you, can you hear the stone rolling away? Can you see it? Can you look inside the tomb? It's glorious. Can you see the little youthful angel? I love it. Hey, he's not here. Didn't he, didn't he tell you he'd be in Galilee? Shouldn't you be in Galilee? He told you that, didn't he? I love it. And you have to lay all your, all your intellectual cleverness, you know, all your doubts and your fears, your anxieties, your hurts, your cares, your worries. You got to bring them here. Because this is glory. This is, this is gain. This is the tomb being empty. He's not there. And what does that mean? It means we take up our cross. We can take up our cross with joy. We can follow after him because that's the path to victory. The empty tomb not only transformed the cross, but it transfigured for all time the body of man. The body that they had pierced, that they had beaten, that they had bruised, That's the body that now sits enthroned. Our Lord's body 
And the Lord sits enthroned there, and you, you had Plato, you had the Greeks, and they said, no body. Get up, get, the body's the problem. We need to get rid of the body. And Jesus said, no, I made that. We're not getting rid of the body. You see, the problem with the body is it just needs resurrection. So all human bodies are what the church has come to call sacred dust. And when Jesus comes back, he comes with a body ready to eat fish. Body and soul are vindicated by the empty tomb. Your body matters, warts and all. That's why we bury the dead. We bury the dead because because we know they're going to sprout. We know they're going to bloom and blossom like trees one day. The empty tomb means hope's alive. It means your sins are forgiven. It means your debt has been paid for. The only thing Jesus left in that grave was your sin. It's the only thing left in the grave. Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so the empty tomb reveals that sin is forever destroyed. Death no longer has a hold on us. It can't grip us. It can't, I, told, I talked about it last week. I said we're too slippery. Life is too slippery. It reveals the beauty of sacrifice. This is the power of love. Love is stronger than death. Love is mightier than the grave. This sacrificial type of love would have died with him forever. But now it breathes and it moves and it sparks and it, and it flames in the passion of, of believers all across the world who go to seek lost things, who love lost people, who love brokenhearted people. Finally, the empty tomb means you must confront Christ in your own life And you've got to reckon with them one way or the other. If Jesus is alive, then that means he's more than merely just a man. If Jesus is alive, it means he's more than just the Christ, just the Messiah. If Jesus is alive, it means he's the Son of God, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. And he tells us he stands at the door and he knocks. He's knocking. He's knocking today. He's knocking. He's calling you out. Just like Lazarus. Do you remember Lazarus? He was dead. And Jesus said, come out. He's calling you today. Come out. Come out of the tomb. Roll the stone away. Hope's here. Roll the stone away. Move it. Come out. You see, either you will roll that stone away now. And you will roll it away and he will roll it away and you will receive life now. Or one day it will be rolled away for you, whether you like it or not. And as your body rematerializes and you cling to that casket with all your life. And as the dirt falls upon your head and the light of Christ and his all-consuming piercing gaze is upon you. You will say, put the stone back. Mountains, where are the mountains? I need any sort of rock to cover me, to shower me. But you have to remember the stones work for him. The stones work for him. Even the stones have enough sense to worship their creator. And when he says roll away, the stone will roll away. And so the question is for you today, if you are lost, he's come to find you. Will you you receive that today? You who bear the image of God, would you have more sense than a rock? 
Would you worship your creator? He loves you. He cares for you. He is coming back. He's told us so. I don't know how long. I know he said it was soon. And I take him at his word. And I bet it's sooner than we think. Today's the day. Today's the day. He loves lost things. He loves lost people. He loves, he loves you. I want to close with this poem by John Updike. It's called Seven Stanzas at Easter. It's, it's quite beautiful. He says this, he says, make no mistake. If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit and the mouse and fuddled eyes of the 11 apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced that died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with a metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, Not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous. For our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awaken in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and are crushed by remonstrance. Don't be embarrassed by the miracle. It's wonderful. Stones rolled away. The tomb is empty. Christ's alive. May the name of the Lord be praised. Let's pray.